Welcome back to episode number 133 of the NP Dude. This is Jeff, the NP Dude, giving nurse practitioners a voice. That's everybody's voice that's out there listening. I don't care who you are. I want to hear from you. I want to know what's bugging you because if it's bugging you, it's bugging me. It better be bugging everybody else. The purpose of this podcast is knowledge. And a lot of it is for you as a listener to be able to learn things on your own and be able to critically analyze things. And a lot of that... um, we, we can't be taught in school, and a lot of it is uh, just being able to take something, pick it apart, and uh, find its flaws, and come up with solutions, and, and um, that's part of what I want to talk about today is solutions to some things out there, and some proposed solutions to some issues that I'm seeing, and um, I have been pretty silent. Uh, I've been extremely busy with, with work, with um, winding down a practice, um, trying to get patients transferred over to a new practice. Um, my, my current office is closing. Uh, not to anybody's fault. It's just the owners didn't, just, they didn't really want us as a family practice, and that's not what they do. So that practice is going away, and that's okay. I've, that's their business decision. Um, and in the process of getting new employment, and uh, which I think I've got locked down, and um, working with the clinical nurse practitioners for Change Group has been a lot of time um, to do that as well. So I apologize to you guys that have sent in questions and comments and concerns and things like that. But um, it, it's been very important, and, and I wanted to take some time to explain my thought process over the last eh, three or four months. When I graduated as an NP, my perception as a new NP was that um, my training knowledge and skill was excellent, um, could definitely have been better, um, and that I assumed that the accrediting bodies for universities and schools were doing their, doing their job and doing it well to prevent schools from allowing nurse practitioner students to skirt the rules and just get through in minimum number of hours and, uh, um, and, and so forth. So that, that was my assumption. And the more I'm out and the more posts I see on Facebook groups that are not the CNPC group, but ones asking for medical help and complaining about their scope of practice that they don't understand. And it's obvious they don't understand what we do and what we're supposed to be doing. It scares the living bejesus out of me that these are NPs that are allowed to practice and they're allowed to get through. Now, people are going to be offended and say, well, that's not me. And if you're listening to this show, it probably isn't you. But there is some people out there, and I always do the 15% rule, right? You guys, if you listen for a while, I say there's 10 to 15% of any profession are just turds. They just don't know what they're doing. And they skirted through. They were book smart, but not not critical analyzers and not critical thinkers. Um, and that's that's part of every program. But the more that I learn about our profession, it scares me. And the more I learn about the accreditation process for the universities, it scares me. And so this is not a bash on, and it has never been an intent. In fact, our original post about me, John Canyon, and Chris talking about the uh, the issues as we saw them in episode one thirty. We specifically said this isn't an online issue. There are great online programs. There are horrible brick-and-mortar programs. It's the accreditation process that I'm not sure is really all that valuable. And so I want to break it down a little bit. Who is the accrediting bodies? The main accrediting bodies for most nurse practitioners in nursing schools is um, the AACN. 
okay? And that, that acronym is for the American Association of Colleges of Nursing. And it's essentially made up of, <coughs> sorry, I'm fighting a cold still. It's essentially made up of the deans and uh, lead educators of most of the universities. So if you're a, a dean or an educator, you can apply to be a member and you can have a vote and a say and all that good stuff. But they're not the accreditors. That's just the association that, that is uh, a group of deans that pro provide um, guideposts and pillars of practice and standards that they want to, to have set forth. And, and a lot of them, as I read them, I don't have a problem with those pillars. I think that those are great goals, great objectives. There, a lot of them are very in-depth, and, um, and so I don't have necessarily a problem with that. The, the part that comes into play that becomes an issue is that the accreditation body is an arm it's a separate entity, so they can say it's not us, but the CCNE is the accreditation body. That's essentially made up of the same groups of people that get to, to go in and accredit the universities to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And um, whether the curricula needs to be changed is subject to debate. Whether the clinical hours that needs to happen is subject to debate. Um, but at the end of the day... One of the things that we look at is is the quality of the pro the the issues or the product that we get out of the universities. And one of the things that's not happening is the quality of the clinical experiences. So what do we look at with the clinical experiences? A lot of people are getting um, signing up with whoever they can get as a preceptor, and they're sitting in a back room and they're just sitting there studying. Or they're, they're only allowed to follow in shadow and not allowed to touch patients. And this happened in my program as well. So I saw it firsthand of people getting crappy, crappy clinicals. I've said in the past, what do you do as a student if you get a crappy clinical? You make the best of it that you can and try to learn as much as you can. But at the end of the day, if you're not touching patients, you're not learning. That was the intent of the clinical experience. And we don't have near the number that the physicians and the PAs get. So that's, that's a different issue. I'm not comparing us to them. I'm comparing us to what we think we should have for us to be good at what we do. So the CCNE in their, um, in their accreditation process, it's very loosey-goosey. It does not say that you have to do um, this type of entrance requirements. You have to do that type of thing over here when, or, or, or this type of uh, simulation over here in this lab or these assessments have to be done or this specific thing needs to be taught in this program and that specific thing in that program. It doesn't work that way. They just give generalizations to give the school the flexibility to put into their program whatever they want. And as long as they follow their own plan, then they get their accreditation. So the standards are really set low, in my opinion. Now, a lot of accrediting bodies do it that way. So that's their defense. PTs do it that way, and med schools do it that way. And they do it because it just depends upon the flexibility of how their program is set up. And every program is slightly different. So that allows for that flexibility, and I get that. But the minimum threshold should still be set in writing, and I don't think that is that way. And especially in, in our current situation where we have... Um, Entrance, people entering into the profession that don't really understand the scope of what it is that we do. And they scare the bejesus out of me. And they should scare you. And they're giving ammunition to the other side to say, you know, look, they're not that good. And so is it threatening for me to point out the fact that, that NPs, there's some NPs out there that shouldn't be NPs? 
No, I don't think it's threatening at all because I think even with the higher minimum threshold for other programs, other allied health programs and things like that, physical therapy, PAs, MDs, DOs, um, speech therapy, whatever, dosimetry, it doesn't matter. The minimum threshold to get in are sometimes more difficult. So you're going to weed out some of the some of the people that don't really want to be in the profession or really shouldn't be in the profession. And people don't like that. They don't want to hear it. All right. Sorry. My phone's ringing. I'm at home. The um, AACN came out in 2015 and published a document. And this document was um, interesting, to say the least. And I, I don't think that there's a lot of um, in here. I'm, I'm going to critique some of it. But most of it, I want to just point and highlight the issues. The... Um, Title of this white paper was called "Reenvisioning the Clinical Education of Advanced Practice Registered Nurses," dated March two thousand fifteen. Okay, the the AACN has a couple things that I want to link together. Number one, if you look at through their website for any length of time, which I've spent some time in the last couple of weeks, just kind of poking through it, looking and seeing what what their goals are, what their objectives are, because it might very well align with what our CNPC groups are. It just might not be effectively be, being um, um, implemented. And, and, and I don't know if there is a, a better way to implement. I don't know yet. We're, that's what we're doing. We're trying to figure out a way. We see problems in our in our profession and we want to try to make it better. There's nothing wrong with that. The, uh, the white paper and most of the other white papers and all the other documents that I see from CCNE and AACN start with a paragraph that talks about the Institute of Medicine 2011 document um, that provided that APRNs are very effective at what they do. And that is true and I agree with it. Um, it's in every paper because it also states that there's that coupled with census data um, from the uh, Department of, where do they have it here? Uh, yeah, I don't see it. But it's the, uh, the um, Federal Department of Jobs, whatever it is, right? Employment, whatever it is. That they they specifically state in their in their um, background information on all of these papers that there is a shortage of nurse practitioners and a shortage of nurses, and that the schools have an obligation. It's an obligation here for them to ramp up and increase the number of providers of healthcare services because of the shortage that's going to be coming with the baby boomers and things like that. And so I say to that, that there is an expansion that is needed. I'm not sure I agree with that because the market doesn't dictate that. If you look out into the world and say, let's look at reality, not the projections from seven years ago, but let's look at the reality of today. And you see advanced practice nurses struggling to get a good paying job. In a lot of areas of the country, mine included. And they're still continuing to pump out more and more, much faster rate of graduation of NPs than it was. Now, the important part for me is some of the things that we would like to see at the CNPC group is that we, would, we think there should be a minimum number of, of years of experience for uh, RNs before they can apply to NP school. Now, I've said in this podcast before, and I truly mean it, you do not need to have RN experience to be an effective NP. It's a different job. 
it's a different set of skills, but you do have to have some experience. I think that, and I've, I've said also that it, it helps you and I would recommend it even if it wasn't required because if you wanted to go out and go straight from your BSN to your MSN and get your doctorate or whatever, and go become a nurse practitioner, you haven't had the experiences to understand that maybe this isn't what you want. So getting into the profession of nursing for a couple years will allow you the opportunity to understand, is this, what, is this my goal? Is this where, where I really want to go with things? The other thing that I see that it does is that with respect to this Institute of Health um, or Institute of Medicine report of the nursing shortage, it will put nurses at the bedside for a period of time and allow them the opportunity to decide, do I really like being a bedside nurse? Maybe they really found their passion and they wouldn't have found that otherwise. So I think that's part of it. I think that also it should be mandated as a way to slow down the process of entrance um, to allow the opportunity for, for the, uh, um, the nurse to understand what nursing is before you end up as a provider. And, and the reason I find that valuable is because, and this is just anecdotal from me, I would not have been able to appreciate taking care of people before they were dying. When I worked in the ICU, I helped people die. End-stage COPD, uh, sepsis, um, aspiration pneumonia, people, old people that you know just weren't able to take care of themselves after CVAs and things. So good health promotion that reinforces the need for you to keep talking to your patients over and over and over again about stopping smoking, stop the drinking, let's do some exercise, let's eat healthier, let's take care of ourselves because when you go to that final stage, it's miserable. And I would not have appreciated COPD the way I do now if I didn't work in the ICU or work inpatient for a period of time before going to be an NP. So I think there is value to it. Do I think you have to have it mentally? No, I think there's a lot of people that could come out and be great NPs without having to go through working bedside. But I think that it is valuable. So that's that's a digression. I didn't really mean to get into that. But that the Institute of Health or Institute of Medicine's report I see published in every single one of these documents, almost everyone, and it's and it's the best data we have on that. And I do think that there is value and I think there is a shortage for RNs, but I think APRNs, when you step back and look at reality, I don't think that's real. And I think that the the educational system as we know it today continues to use that as evidence for the need for them to pump out as fast as possible at, at any cost possible to the to the future of the profession without regard without regard for quality, to, in some instances. That doesn't say that all schools that are online or brick and mortar are horrible. I think there's some great ones, and I've seen a lot of anecdotes from the CNPC group about people that are getting great education, and I think we need to, to um, uh, support those universities that are doing a good job. But I still think that we're pumping out too many NPs because the market's flooded. It just is. And, and not recognizing that is a problem to me. That's a problem. How do we recognize that? We recognize it. All of the NPs that are out there trying to get jobs, especially newer NPs, um, it's a problem. It's still not nearly as, as a problem as engineering was. Engineering was really hard to get a job there for a while after the crash. Um, 
But that being said, it's that's that's what this this first thing is in this document. The other thing what they what they do with this this document is they're they're trying to address specifically the lack of clinical sites. And they compare, and they compare, not me, but they compare to medicine and PT and DO and MDs, and they evaluate what the perception of the lack of, of clinical sites is. So they don't actually look at the number of clinical sites. They pull individuals and say, what's your concern about the clinical sites? So they make it look like when you look at the bar graph that there's a bigger problem um, about the clinical site that maybe it is. I don't know. We can't compare it because we don't know what the problem of actual shortage of clinical sites is versus just the perception of the clinical sites. So that's a problem too. So people perceive that there's a clinical, a clinical uh, site issue, lack of preceptors and lack of sites. And so what does this document do? It goes and lists about, I don't know, eight or nine different con conclusions of problems. So I'm going to go through what I saw as the problem. I posted this to the CNPC group. So if you're not a member of that group and you're not afraid of some, some um, rocking the boat, so to speak, as far as the uh, discussions that are being had over there, um, go ahead and request to join. If you're an NP, you need to answer the questions. You need to give us some information on who you are, and then we'll prove your, your request. Um, but I'm going to go through those, a couple of them as I see them. And, I, and, and if you want to just read it, you can. You go right to the, to the CMPC website or uh, Facebook page. But the first one here is it says that there's a growing demand of preceptors and clinical sites and, a pre and apprenticeships model um, may not be sustainable. So there, these are the problems that they see. And the apprenticeship model is basically they're saying that the last 40-some years, you would go to school, you would have a, be linked one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two with, with um, an experienced person in that profession, and they would apprentice you and teach you and train you and allow you to do things, and you would get so much time with them, and that would be one issue. Okay, Two, Nursing schools are having difficulty getting nursing students, quote, cleared for clinical sites. And the process is, um, it's administrative in nature was the problem. Uh, difficult in uh, getting affiliate agreements with sites. So this was a problem in my area when I was in, in school not too long ago, two or three years ago. The clinical sites, uh, a lot of them, especially for PEDS and OB, were already tied in with hospitals that had... Um, owned most of the outpatient clinics and because of that they they had contracts with the um the med schools the pa schools and some of the np schools so even if i had a preceptor that was willing in in uh, let's just use and I'm, this is an example not necessarily specific let's just say um xyz children's hospital outpatient and i have a preceptor that says yeah jeff i'll take you i still have to go through the administrative process to be approved after all the other people get a chance at that spot first which means i'm never going to get it okay so i agree that's a major problem Three, AACN is concerned about the decrease in quantity and quality of clinical sites and preceptors due to the increased number in schools. And this was data from 2015, and I think the study was actually, that they quoted was from even earlier, I want to say it was 14 or 13, that said there was a 17% increase in the number of schools over like the last, it was like a five-year period. 17% increase in five years. 
And that was back in 2015, 14, when they published this document. So since then, in the last three years, looking at all of the online um, ads that come to me through my internets, I'm seeing a ton of them. Now, were all of those around back then? Probably, but man, is there a lot more marketing for it. So I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if it's more or not. I don't know. Are we still growing at 17%? Are we at 20% or is it tapered off? I have no idea. There's no studies that I can find that show that. But I have a feeling, a sinking feeling that a lot of the brick and mortar schools that are out there are now doing online programs. So I think that the number of school access, whether you say new schools, complete new school, or increased number of seats for people to quote unquote sit in, whether it's a seat that's that's um, online seat or whether it's an in the brick and mortar building seat, um, I think those numbers are even higher. So I don't know if number of schools is the measure we should be using. It should be the number of applicants and the number of students, I think is significantly higher than that number. Okay, so we're, we're, we're following the IOM's guidelines right now, right? We're, we're the recommendation that we need to increase students. So that's what they're doing. Four, nursing schools may need to pay preceptors or clinical sites to procure them. And this was back in 2015. When I was in school, there was no talk about paying preceptors on the Facebook forms. That wasn't until like a year or two when it really started to take off. And there's people in our CNPC group that run um, job or uh, clinical placement companies. And that's all they do. They're NPs that understand the need and they're filling that gap. And so they are a, an industry that is created. The market will dictate. This is, this is a, a, in my opinion, either a good or bad thing. I don't know, but um, it's a service and some people might need it. So the problem is, is that we need good qualified clinical sites, right? Okay. Um, let's see, where was I? Oh, this was the other half of that part. Incentivizing preceptors is likely not an institutional priority where money for other projects is needed. So that's the words of the AACN. Again, remember who the AACN is. The AACN is the deans and the, and the leaders in the educational system. And they're saying that finding clinical sites by paying preceptors is not a priority for them as of 2015. I don't know if it is today. I sure as heck think that clinical sites should be procured by good clinical sites that are tried and true and, and had um, uh, training to be clinical instructors should be procured by the schools because it'll do a couple different things. One is it's going to limit the number of sites. Therefore, it's going to limit the number of applicants that are approved and accepted. There's only so many spots where we can train people properly. Guess what? That's the biggest that we can go. And that will, that will limit the market to make it more effective for um, the marketability of the, the graduates as well. I just, I find it almost laughable that they would even admit that in that document. Incentivizing preceptors is likely, is likely not an institutional priority. Yeah, it's not. They don't want to spend money on having to actually procure somebody that's quality. They'd rather say, find your own clinical sites, good luck, and we'll send you out the door. And that doesn't guarantee that you're going to find a good clinical site. Scary, right? That's, that's the, thought, the thought process there. Not my words, theirs. Okay. Five, 
States are regulating placement of out-of-state APRN students, especially for distance education programs. So what they're saying here is that, that um, if you are in California and you are in an online program that is in, the, you know, let's say the, I don't know, I'm going to make one up that's not, I, I don't know, University of Des Moines. I have no idea if they have an online program. I'm just making this up, okay? So I'm not picking on a school. But the problem is, is that if you are from that school that's in Iowa, and California says we won't recognize that school because we want our in-state schools to get first pick of all the good priority sites. So the states are even recognizing the fact that there's a clinical shortage and a clinical preceptor shortage and the, they're, they're limiting it. And, and the schools are recognizing that and that's, that to them is a barrier, not a, not a warning sign to say, look, maybe we need to fix this in a different way. I don't know. We'll go through their solutions and see if their solutions fix it. I don't know. If they would have, if their solutions in 2015 would have been implemented properly or effectively, then in theory, it should have mitigated the clinical site issue and it either isn't or it's not being implemented. <coughs> Pick one. I don't know because we still have the problem today. That's the, that's the issue. All right. Um, six. Pervasive faculty shortages are limiting enrollment into nursing schools. Um, I see tons of posts on the Facebook forums that ask, hey, how do I get to be an online instructor? Um, I, we have 220,000 nurse practitioners in the United States, and most of the NP programs are using adjunct faculty, uh, which are paid next to nothing. So you get what you pay for. So you can either pump through a bunch of students and use adjunct faculty and pay them four or five thousand dollars a semester um, to to try and and corral and read online posts and grade things and make sure that you're answering questions and being available. That's a hard job for that amount of money. So I'm not picking on the the teachers. I really am not. I think that a lot of them try to do the very best they can, but they're um, stretched too thin. They're working full time jobs often and doing this in addition to. So I don't know if that's the most effective way of doing it. So how do we fix that? I don't know. This, this white paper doesn't respond to that, their, their uh, recommendations on that. So they just noticed that as a problem. I agree. It's a problem. I think limiting the number of students would fix part of that problem. Charge more money per student, but limit the number of people that you're letting in. I, I don't know how to answer that. If, if you want a good program that's going to be very inclusive of your knowledge, then people will be willing to pay for it, especially in this day and age. A lot of people are trying to get the cheapest thing they can, but um, at the end of the day, I, I don't know if it's valuable. I would have thought, two years ago, I would have thought that the cheapest NP school would have been just as good as the best NP school because you would have had minimum requirements that would have been mandated. But I'm not sure that's true anymore. And that's why I've had this kind of change of heart, Okay. All right, seven, exposure to less common diagnoses such as cardiac and orthopedic problems is likely to occur when using the minimum number of clinical hours. And this one here was there, there the statement was in the context or why I think it was important was they're, they're admitting that they're only going to get so much quality out of minimum number of hours. And the 500 hours, in my opinion, is too low. I think that we have to, as NPs, I would have paid for another year of clinical experience if it was good quality experience that was provided to me. If I had to find another year of clinical sites and beg for people to give me something to, to do and, and it wasn't quality, it would have been no value and it would just cost me more money. But if it would have been high quality and provided to me, I would have paid more money and went another year.
I'm just telling you that. I would have. I would have happily done it. All right. Eight, competency of students in clinical are measured by faculty, preceptors, and students. This is a problem that they see. That's a problem to them. I don't know why. I don't know, understand why that t- t- competency of students in clinicals are measured by faculty, preceptors, and the student. To me, I think that the faculty, the preceptors, and the student should all be involved in their, in their clinicals. In my clinicals, they did that well. We had a, a, a form that we filled out as a student that said, how do you think you're doing? How do you think you're progressing? They had one at midterm and they had one at final. If along the way you had an issue, you could always bring it up with your clinical instructor as well as your preceptor. And if you were doing what you're supposed to be doing, you would, you would tell all your marks and, get, and, and learn. It was effective. I thought I had good clinical experiences through my school. So, I mean, there are those that are doing it well. But here they're seeing that as a problem. I don't know why. I'm, the only thing I could presuppose is that that, that they don't want faculty preceptors and the students grading themselves? I, I don't know why that would be a problem. Okay. And maybe I'm misreading that one, but I thought it was interesting that, that that was kind of a negative, that they were talking down on the fact that faculty preceptors and the students are the only measure of how well they're, they're um, doing in a clinical setting. All right, so here's their solution list. You ready? This was me reading and breaking down their solution list, and then they, gave, they came up with four recommendations that they, they had at the end. All right, so here's the solutions. One, regional academic consortia to place APR and preceptors. That's already being done. I don't think that's new. I don't think that's, that's a new thing. Regional academic consortia to place APR institutes. I think that, that some, and what they, what they mean by this is um, they're, they're trying to get schools in areas. In my area, there's, I don't know, Kent State, Akron, Malone, Walsh, um, who else is around here? There's a couple others. That's just in my immediate neighborhood. I mean, that's within 20 miles of my uh, where I live. So that being said, there's four schools pumping out 20, 30, plus online possibly, you know, 50, 60 students per class doing clinicals, fighting for spots. So if there was a consortia between all of the schools, they could come up with a database and allow for selection and rotation and make sure that there is sufficient number of preceptors for that to happen. That is not one of their recommendations, by the way. I think it's not a bad option. I think what would happen if you did that is you would realize that the number of preceptors is substantially less than the number of um, spots, and it would be too close to admitting that there was a problem at the, stu- at the school level. And they don't want that. They don't want to be raising red flags saying, look, uh, you know, we'd love to have you come here, but we only have 30 uh, clinical sites that we can rotate you through, and I've got 46 people in the class. That's a problem because it puts too much onus on the, on the educational system to actually do that. All right, what else do we have here? Two, faculty practice partnerships. So this is where the faculty goes to practices and gets agreements that says, we want to work with your practice and we'll, we'll allow you know, so many students to come through and we'll rotate them through. Is there a way we can make that happen? And there could be financial, you know, they could pay that, that uh, practice or give some kind of a uh, public recognition or sponsor them somehow in their um for the school maybe do some kind of uh you know collaborative effort between the faculty and the practice that um 
promotes both of them in the community. And I've talked about that, I think, on my podcast too. So that's not a bad option. But I think that's already being done as well. I think those are, if that, if that could happen, that would have already been done. Um, I I just think it's, 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 yes, it's a, it's a solution, but it's, it's a solution that's already in the works. Now, since 2015, in all honesty, maybe it wasn't being done back then and it's now being implemented. And I think that's a good one. That's a good, that's a good solution. I really do. Um, interprofessional practice, interprofessional practice. There's a lot of language in this document about interprofessional practice. Interprofessional practice is basically, let's think of it this way from the university's perspective. If I have a med school, a PA school, an NP school, a PT school, an OT school, a speech therapy school, and a lot of their core classes, like let's say pharmacology and pathophysiology are very similar interprofessional practice at the educational level would be jamming all those people together in one big classroom to have one big happy family. This is a little bit different in that it's out in the practice setting. So instead of having NPs shadow NPs, it's NPs working with other professionals to get their clinical hours. So they don't delve into what that specifically means in this document. Does that mean that you work for um, MD or a DO in a clinical site? Maybe. I think we're already doing that. So I don't know if that's helpful. That was already part of the, pr- the process. Is it, you know, we go work in physical therapy and podiatry and chiropractic and, you know, pick some other allied health professions to get hours just for the sake of getting hours? I don't know if that's beneficial. I think it's important to know what other profession, interprofessional, um, in, interprofessional practice is important. I do think it's important that we understand what that is, but I don't know if it should make up a substantial amount of hours of what we should be doing on a day-to-day basis. Okay. Four, simulation as an option to fix the clinical site and preceptor problems. These are my words in my summary. So what they spent a lot of time at multiple parts in this document talking about simulation as a way to come through and say, we can't find enough clinical sites, so we evaluate and see does simulation work versus non, not using simulation in educational model. And there is some benefit to using simulation according to the studies that they cited, and I trust that they did that. So I think simulation could be helpful. I really think it's a good option. I really do. I like it. I like the simulation idea. And then we'll talk about it a little bit more, but I, I like the simulation. Five, moving from clinical hours to competency-based evaluation. This is in other professions already, and um, we do this somewhat now already. So I don't know if this is all that beneficial in that, you know, if we're going to wipe the slate clean and say, you know what, we don't really need hours. We just want you to be able to check boxes to say that you did something. There's enough people lying about checking boxes out there in the clinical sites now. What do you think is going to happen without them at least getting some hours? So I think you have to have both. I think both are needed for that. So going to a competency-based is okay. My wife teaches physical therapy in the lab, and she does competencies all the time. I actually read, they list the competencies on page 25 of this document, and um, they compare the competencies from other professions to NPs, and we, of course, have a bunch of convoluted words to, to try to describe things. But when you look at what the medical schools have for competencies, it's really basic. It's treat patients, evaluate you know, diseases. Yeah, I mean, it's really basic words, but when you read ours, it's like over complex, over convoluted, and it's like, come on, guys, you don't need to use more words to explain it. It just makes us look silly. 
Six, combining all four APRN common core competencies to alleviate pressures on faculty. So that kind of goes hand in hand with the interprofessional practice that I talked about. This is kind of like the interprofessional education that I, I used as an example. What they want to do is take CRNA, midwives, um, CNSs, and NPs, and jam all the core classes together. So I would go out on a limb and say, when I, was, when I was about to interview for CRNA and was already accepted into FNP and decided I didn't want to do CRNA, when I was looking at that, their, their core classes, they were a different, it was a different class. I, I would love to have taken a lot of their classes, um, but their pathophysiology and their physiology, their pathophysiology was very geared towards respiratory. They did cover all the other stuff, but they were really geared towards respiratory. I mean, we spent the first third of the semester just on respiratory. It was awesome. I loved it. It was great learning. I wish the rest of it was that deep, but you know, you just can't be. There's just not enough time. So I don't know how the core competencies, um, trying to get us to do that would work. The other thing is, is that with core competencies, we're not even talking all of just the NPs work in core competencies. I think that in in the CNPC group, we're, we're making recommendations for nurse practitioners to have a base NP degree, and then you specialize later. And so that would mean that everybody that goes to NP school would be basically eligible to be do, doing psych, family practice, and acute care for all ages. That would be your core competencies. So I, I think what we're proposing is very in line with number six on my list of their solutions, but that's not one of their, their recommendations. I think that that is a good recommendation to do that for some. I would love to, to bring everybody up to the highest common denominator, not the lowest common denominator. <clears throat> I think that would, be that would be fantastic, but I don't know how you're going to do it with, with NP, CRNA, CNS, and CNMs. I think with all the, NMP, all the NPs alone, it would be okay. <coughs> All right, sorry. All right, here's the recommendations. Four of them. Out of all the problems that they see, these are the four that they feel like they can affect change on the fastest. One is simulation. I don't know if the numbering system is by the level of importance because it's not in the same order that they were necessarily brought up in the um, document. So i th assuming, which it doesn't say this, that this is in the level of like most effective way that they can get this thing done to help alleviate the, the problem with, um, with clinical sites. Simulation is their number one. Number two is academic practice partnerships, which is different wording than what they did up above. Up above, they called it faculty practice partnerships. Again, I think that's already being in the works, the academic practice partnerships. If you can get them done, they're getting done. Three, competency-based, clinical-based education and assessment. So they're already saying we're going to go from hours to just competencies. So I don't know. They don't say, do we get rid of the hour requirements or do we get decrease the hour requirements? And if you're cruising through and smart and you want to do it in 200 hours, but you hit all the competencies, you're good to go. I, they don't say that. But what they do give is um, in, in other guideposts, it says 500 hours unless you're in a specific um, um, seeing multiple populations, then it goes up. So I don't know if that means they're going to try to change that or not. We'll have to wait for the draft document and see if they try, and that's okay. We, I mean, we can talk about it. We're not, we're not bashing anybody. We're just trying to figure out what the problems are so that we as a group understand it and can move forward. Number four 
is support alternative innovative clinical education models, which is just a fallback of saying like in research, well, we, we think more research should be done on this and we're not going to preclude other models of education because we just haven't thought of them yet. I'm okay with that. There's nothing wrong with saying we don't know. If something better comes up, we'll go with it. Um, but nowhere in here does it say provide clinical sites for um, these students. It doesn't say that we are going to limit the number of students to the number of good clinical sites. It doesn't, it doesn't say any of those options. And I think those should be part of the equation. Do I think this document was total crap? I don't. I think there were some good points in here, and I think they did a good job admitting that there was a lot of problems. So the first step with any, any uh, you know, bad habit is admitting that there's a problem. So right now we have a bad habit, and we're admitting the problem, and we're working on the solutions. And I think that um, if you guys want to be a part of this, I think it's, it's great. Um, it's a great opportunity to be involved. I think students, if you're, if you're doing your online posts and you're trying to uh, understand where you are, on uh, practice issues, this would be a great one to write a paper about, to outline and, and evaluate this document. There's enough resources in there that you can go dig through and get lost for a, for a semester. Okay. Um, I appreciate you guys that are out there listening, and uh, I appreciate the people on the CNPC group because I really think that, that um, you know, we're not bitching and moaning. And the, the problem is, is that people are going to presume that because we think that there's a problem out there, that we're just going to point out the problems and that we don't have solutions. I think we have some good ideas on solutions. Um, we've been very busy behind the scenes. Um, we are filing articles of incorporation. They've, they've been filed working on bylaws for an organization. The name is not going to be disclosed until we have everything finalized. Um, and we, we hopefully will be pu pulling people in that want to be a part of a clinical-based NP group because I don't find them that they exist. If somebody knows of one, I would be happy to join it because I can't find one. There's none that are clinical-based. All of the organizations are either um, feeding the, the, the existing beast of, of the um, AACN or CCNE, or they are um, state organizations, which I do believe in, um, but they're, they're fighting different fights. They're not trying to, at this point clean up our back doors the way I like to analyze it. Everybody wants to attack full practice authority and everybody wants to attack, um, you know, this, this physician over here said this about us and that group over there said that about us and they don't like us and they think we're crap. And, and here I'm sitting there saying, you know what, we, we need to fight those battles, but we also need to look at ourselves with good, you know, introspection and see, do we have, do we have room for improvement? And I think we do. And, and being an NP pointing out that we can improve ourselves isn't, isn't a negative. That's a positive. And so I, I find it disheartening when I see educators trying to bash um, people in my group for wanting to make improvements, wanting to make a clinical-based uh, degree. And, um, and I agree with John Canyon. I, you know, the, the, the doctorate, the DNP, when you look at it, is not clinical based. It just isn't. And to say it is, and I'm going to get hate mail, it's not. It's just not clinical based. Working at your current job is part of it, but there's no there's no foundation for that. It's it's all writing research papers. It's a it, the 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 idea that the DNP came about was because the PhD nobody wanted. So they said, here's a clinical option. You can go out and get this DNP and you can go out and work. But in reality, the, the way they tie it in, and I just don't buy it. I don't, I, I, 
I've not drank the Kool-Aid, I guess. I don't know. When, when I hear somebody say, my single research project that I did and wasted tons of time on understanding how to do this um, research project and, and collecting data and doing this and, and writing it and trying to implement change in clinical practice, the tie to trying to change it in clinical practice, yeah, that's not strong enough for me. We need to know how to treat patients and assess them and treat them and take care of them and be on par with others that are providers out there. That's what we need. And I'm not saying get rid of research in our, in our profession. We need that. We need to promote that. But let's call it for what it is. Let's not be deceptive and tell people you need a terminal DNP to practice because that's what's going to make you a better pr- practitioner. I don't think it makes you a better clinical practitioner. I think it makes you better at doing research and better at understanding nursing theory and, and better at uh, you know understanding maybe professional role and informatics. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of great things in there. They're all wonderful things to learn, but that's not clinical. That's the issue. That's why the CNPC group was formed. We need something different. First step is going to be uh, waiting for the A, uh, sorry, the CCNE's um, pr- proposed changes to their uh, regulations. I use regulations loosely because it's not law, but their their guidelines, and uh, we're waiting for those anxiously, and they're still not posted yet. So we're you know we're in the middle of April. We were told April they're going to be out. So um, previously they've closed um, first week in May on their comments. So I don't know if they're holding them on purpose or if they're um, just not available or it's low priority or what. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But when they get them out, we will look at them. We were going to publish them, and I'll let you guys in the NPD world know as well. I encourage you to get involved in this. This is important. This is the future of our profession. And uh, whether you feel strongly on one side or the other, I don't care, but I think you need to be involved in it because um, sitting back and just waiting um, – it's, you, you can't. We, we all have to be a voice here on this one. And you guys are welcome to use me as a mouthpiece. I'll answer questions as I can. So if you have them, send them to me, jeff at the npdude.com. You can always give me a PM through Facebook. Don't forget to like and share the show. I don't know what we're up to on Facebook likes. It's like 2,300 maybe, 2,500, I can't remember. It's, it's low priority for me right now. So um, that being said, guys, thanks for listening. I really appreciate you guys. You guys are doing a great job out there. Um, If you're working and you're uh, seeing patients, I want you to try your very best to promote our profession. Do not tear us down. Don't get in Facebook battles over stupid crap on Facebook. It's not worth it. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Make your point and move on. Do it professionally. Do it nice. You can be quippy if you want. If you guys are, you can. If you're getting a little banter back and forth, that's fine. But you always have to be careful because sometimes it doesn't get well received. You just don't know what it's going to get. So that being said, guys, that is my take on the uh, AACN white paper that is the reevaluation of the clinical education advanced practice registered nurses, March 2015. You guys can go over to the CNPC group and join if you'd like. Um, it's not for the faint of heart, though. We're talking serious stuff. This isn't just uh, you know, hey, what lab coat should I get? This is actually hard. hardcore stuff there Um, some people don't like it and they're asking to leave and putting that they don't like it they don't want to be involved in that they want to bury their head in the sand and pretend like everything's wonderful i don't care they can do that that's their option but i i choose not to i choose to want to uh, help this profession and be the best it can and i hope that everybody out there recognizes that that is what we're doing regardless of your viewpoint so thanks for listening guys be smart be safe promote the profession and we'll talk soon